It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. What am I talking about? Well, it's pain and suffering. And uh, so many authors have tackled that issue because everybody has to wrestle with it. And thank goodness, Tim Keller took it on in a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Hi, Gary Zacharias, The Apologist Bookshelf. I wanted to share with you what I consider to be a, a, an epic book looking at the problem of pain and suffering that people have uh, dealt with. So Tim Keller, you know enough about him probably already, but just real quickly, he started in 1989 Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and now it has something like 5,000 regular attendees, and it started more than 250 churches around the world. He's a best-selling author, uh, The Reason for God, and I've mentioned that in a previous podcast, and another book called The Prodigal God, uh, and, and many others. But he's dealing in this one with an issue we all have to face, pain and suffering, as unhappy as that makes us, but we, we do have to face it. I wanted to share with you at first here, It's by the way, it's really difficult to cover this book in a, just a small podcast. I'm just doing a portion of it, but it's so rich and it's so thorough that I'd love to do, well, I'll come back to it and I'd love to do the whole book sometime. But here's how he set it up. He says in the first part of the book, we're going to look at it from, in a sense, 30,000 feet. It's just various ways that different cultures and religions and eras and history have tried to help people get through a problem of pain and suffering. He said it may be abstract for somebody who's in the middle of adversity, so maybe uh, they shouldn't, if they're going to read the book, maybe they don't want to start with the first section. So it's more the philosophy and the, the big issue of, uh, of pain and suffering. And he says the second part of the book gets away from that theory and begins to digest what the Bible really says about suffering, pain and suffering. And then he goes to the third part of the book, and that's the most practical material. He says, how do we actually walk with God in pain and suffering? How do we orient ourselves toward him so that that suffering is going to change us for the better instead of making us worse? And he says each chapter in this third section is based on just one strategy to connect with God better through pain and suffering. He says that these are not steps, just various aspects. And so he says, if you're in the middle of struggle right now, maybe you want to read parts two and three of the book first. So what I'm going to do, and again, it's really difficult to do this because he's got so much here, but I would like to look at a section of the book fairly near the beginning. And he talks about pain and suffering. What's the secular perspective, the, the non-Christian, which is probably the dominant view today in our society, people who are not Christian. And he says this view, the secular view, really does not work for most people who are facing suffering. Why? And he gives several reasons. He says, first of all, there's such a variety of uh, suffering coming from a lot of different causes. And he says the Western culture, our culture, oversimplifies this complex set of, cuff of suffering. He says it just reduces it to basically victimization. But he said... Plenty of suffering, even illness, is caused sometimes by the sufferers themselves. Well, I know that. A lot of my pain and suffering I go through, I've caused. But he says the Western view is that you're a victim of it, which is not always true. He says another problem with our current Western culture view is that it's optimistic about human life. So 
The idea is, look, you're going through pain and suffering. Let's make the world better so we can eliminate suffering right here. Because secularism doesn't really have any other happiness to offer. If you can't find it here, there's no hope. And he says human life is hard for people, and it's always going to be hard. And you're living without any future hope. So secular people have to believe that we could eliminate unhappiness right now. But he says that's, that's basically impossible. The causes of suffering are infinitely complex and impossible to eliminate. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't think we should try and make some changes and make the world a better place. So don't, don't uh, think that's what Keller means. He, he gets clear in other places where he says, no, we ought to do what we can do, but we're not going to eliminate it. He says, um, he quotes somebody here, says, societies founded on a faith in progress cannot admit the normal unhappiness of human life. Okay, so let's go beyond this then. Let me pick up with, he gives kind of a, a three big ideas of American culture in the past. In the first few years of American society, he said, pretty much you live for the glory of God. Then that shifted over after we became a country, and it was the idea of we live for the nation. You know, God, God was still believed by the vast majority, but he was a little less... Uh, there, a little bit more remote. And he said, finally, third phase is living for the self. And that's our time period. Instant gratification is set up for the good life. And the contemporary person feels like, well, there's really nothing that transcends himself. And here's the problem. He quotes Viktor Frankl, who uh, was involved in the Nazi death camps. He said, people who are their own legislators of morality and meaning don't have anything to die for and therefore nothing to live for when life takes away their freedom. So he said, uh, modern culture gives people really no life story that has any goal more important than just hanging in there and be comfortable. So uh, he says, the Christian story, though, is so different because modern culture doesn't have any place for suffering. It just it can't deal with it and tries to get away from it and, and take a pill for it or try to get rid of it out in the world. But he says the Christian story is utterly different. Suffering is at the heart of the Christian story. Suffering is the result of us. We've turned from God, and it's the way that God himself, through Jesus, came and rescued us. And so it's how we suffer that comprises one of the main ways we become great and Christ-like, holy and happy, and a way that we can show the world the love and glory of our Savior. He says, uh, when we confront suffering, it goes back to the modern culture, the Western world today, the non-Christian view. He says, when we confront suffering, we think that what will solve it is a change of public policy. You know, just roll our sleeves up. Let's make some changes. Or it's better psychology and therapy or technology, um, brain implants or whatever. But he says, I think this is so true. The world's darkness is too deep by... Uh, to dispel just by these things. He said, it's pretty prideful, isn't it, to believe that we can control and defeat the darkness with our knowledge? He says, we don't often admit how dark the world is, but you get things like 9-11 or shootings, it just pushes down on us, and we should not be passive in the face of disasters. And, he, and this is where he says, hey, look, if we can change public policy to prevent some of that darkness, let's do it. But we have to realize those measures will never be enough. Why? Pain and evil in this world are 
pervasive and they're deep and they have spiritual roots. You can't give a pill for that. He says one of the main teachings of the Bible is that almost no one grows into greatness or finds God without suffering. Ooh, I don't want to hear that. Uh, no one uh, without pain coming in our life to wake us up. That's the point of it. It wakes us up. And it tells us something about our own hearts that we were blind to. And again, ouch, we don't necessarily want to hear that, do we? Now, I'm going to take you to another section in the book close to that. And he talks about arguments that are given against God because of evil. He says, you know, the, the old argument was any God who's all-powerful and all-good should stop horrendous evil and suffering because he would not only want to prevent it, he'd have the ability and yet, here's all this evil, so therefore, either God doesn't exist or he probably doesn't exist. And he gives a quick history of this argument against God idea, uh, arguments against God from evil. And he said, you know, a lot of academic philosophers up until the 80s, 1980s, thought that was it. That was a proof that the traditional God could not exist. But he says Alvin Plantinga wrote a book, called God, Freedom, and Evil in 1974, and another book called The Nature of Necessity. And he said, that shows that the existence of evil is not logically incompatible with the existence of a perfectly good God. And apparently that book was so successful, so effective, that it says 25 years later since that book came out, it was widely conceded that the logical argument against God didn't work. Now, skeptical thinkers have come up with a new version. It's a weaker claim. It says it's not proof that God doesn't exist, but it's evidence. So they're, they're softening it a little bit. Well, what have Christians done to try to counteract this? <clears throat> well, they've come up with several things. For example, they've said, well, this is a world of soul making. In other words, um, if we are hit with hard things in this world, it, it creates virtues in us. Like, how could you have courage or humility or self-control or faithfulness unless you had to go through some tough things? He said, but some of the problems are it doesn't seem to be, if that's the way it operates, many people with bad souls don't have the adversity they need. <laughs> I can think of some people like that. I bet you can too, too that they're, they're obviously not good people, but they're doing pretty well in this world. So where's that veil of soul-making? doesn't seem to work all the time. Well, he says Christians also come up with the argument regarding free will, that God has made this world, but he values us so much that he gives us free will, and we abuse it, and that's the reason for evil. Well, that's popular because it sounds good, but there are two problems, he says, with this view. One is that only seems to explain a certain kind of evil, like moral evil, like we pick up a gun and go out and shoot somebody. I mean, that's that's free will, and that's a moral evil. But he says, how does that explain natural evil? Because we've got diseases, and we've got earthquakes, and tsunamis, and things like that. And then he says, but you know, there's another problem with that argument about free will. He said, do you think it's really true that God could not create free agents capable of love without making them also capable of evil? If God has a free will, but he doesn't do anything wrong, why couldn't there be other beings that are constituted the same way? He said the other problem, as far as uh, the free will argument, he said 
it assumes that despite the horrendous evils of history, that merely having freedom of choice is worth it. He said, but, but is it? So he says, we need more than that. He said, uh, taken all together, all these arguments can account for a great deal of human suffering, but they always fall short. And in fact, Alvin Planning has said that most attempts to explain why God permits evil strike him as shallow. So he says, all right, he said, most Christian thinkers have actually turned away from trying to argue in, in defense. They have, they have argued now that something a little smaller, that a defense simply seeks to prove that the arguments against God from evil fail. So the burden is not on us to say why we think God allows evil. We just show that these uh, arguments are not so good. So he says, you know, if you look at the two statements, there's a good, omnipotent God, and then the second statement, there's evil in the world. They're not a direct contradiction. The skeptic has to make a case that they actually contradict each other. They must provide an argument that's so convincing, you say, oh, now I see why if evil exists, God cannot exist. That's not an easy case to make. So um, he says, if I can't, <laughs> well, I think this is a really good one. He says, what's going on here is often an assumption that if I can't see any reasons God might have for permitting that evil, then probably he doesn't have any. That's pretty egotistical, isn't it? And a rejoinder, he says to that skeptic is, you know, if God is infinitely knowledgeable, why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? I mean, how could we think of things as thoroughly as an all-powerful God could? So I think that's a really good one as well. Okay, well, I realize this is just just the beginning of his book here. He said, oh, let me, I like his, uh, his conclusion to this chapter too. He says, in summary, the problem of senseless suffering doesn't go away if you abandon belief in God. See, that's a really good point. The atheist says to you, well, you've got a problem because God exists. And it's a problem of evil. And you can't explain it. And you can say, okay, let's, let's take away the idea of God. Does that get rid of the problem of evil? Absolutely not. The atheist is stuck with evil. You know, there's the old story. Uh, somebody said, well, here you are, a Christian. What would you say at the bedside of a dying child? And that is horrible. I mean, I can't imagine much worse than that. But, you know, the Christian response is, and what would you, as the skeptic or the atheist, what would you say when you walk into that room and you confront the parents standing there next to the bedside of a dying child? So tossing God out of the picture, which actually would give the parents some hope, you toss God out and put the atheist there, what is he or she going to say in front of that dying child and to the parents? Tough luck. Things just didn't work out well. So he says, the problem of sense of suffering doesn't go away if you abandon belief in God. If there's no God, why do we have a sense of outrage and horror when unjust suffering occurs to any group of people? I mean, think about it. violence and suffering and death. That's just, those are natural phenomena. If there's no God or higher divine law, then violence is perfectly natural. What are we complaining about? All right, well, that's just a, a part of the book, and I wish I could spend more time, and I hope that was clear enough to give you some ideas here. But um, I like Tim Keller so much, and I feel like I didn't do him justice, but uh, you would enjoy this book, if that's the right way to put it, but you would get a lot out of it. How about I say it that way? 
So it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and the author is Tim Keller. Well, thanks, and I hope you can join me in a future podcast.